You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Robert Delaney, who's an award-winning author and journalist. He has been covering China as a journalist for Dow Jones Newswires, Bloomberg News, and the South China Morning Post since 1995. His collection of short memoirs, Route 1 to China, received first runner-up in the University of Toronto Penguin Random House Creative Writing Competition. And his debut novel, The Wounded Muse, is out now. So welcome, Robert, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. So it, it, it's interesting. You, you, you started working in China and becoming interested in China long before a lot of other people did, when it was not quite the juggernaut that it is today. You know, a lot of us are really interested in how China has grown in the last 20 plus years. But what got you interested in, in China in the first place? Didn't you move there in like the early 90s? Uh, I did. And uh, before I moved there, uh, I, I started taking an interest in China because throughout university, I, I studied uh, Kung Fu. And um, in the, my last year at college, I decided I wanted to do an, in, an independent study about the martial arts in America. So my advisor said, okay, you really need to to understand the philosophy behind Kung Fu if you really want to do this independent study. So I kind of delved into a lot of books about Buddhism uh, and then uh, also Taoism. And I just, uh, I, it, it started to consume me. I started to actually look forward to, to, to doing the research as opposed to anything I was doing for any of my other classes. So, so, so there was that, that kind of, that started my interest. And then, uh, in my, uh, I guess it was my junior year um, in college, uh, there, there were the uh, student protests at Tiananmen Square in uh, 1989, and that just kind of riveted my attention. I just thought it was, I, on the one hand, I, I had this this understanding of these very profound uh, philosophies and, and religions, uh, and then on the other hand, there, there was this current event playing out that was so violent, and uh, it just all seemed uh, nothing seemed to to add up for me. So, when uh, when when the idea came to me that I could I could actually go to China and study Chinese, I just kind of went for it, and uh, and that's how I wound up there in uh, in 1992. Well, Tiananmen Square might not be something that people of a younger generation remember very much, or they might just seen the picture 
of the man standing in front of the tanks. But this is this is kind of a come to Jesus moment for the Chinese. They're, they're, this is a turning point where the China we get today might, you could argue, was a direct result of what comes out of Tiananmen Square. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's a great assessment because I I think the the grand bargain that was struck between the government and the people in China at that time was, uh, okay, we are going to allow more freedom uh, because I think it was apparent to the government that they're that they were going to have to loosen the reins somewhere and and but essentially the government said we're we're going to allow economic freedom we're going to allow people to do business and engage in trade and we're going to uh, to start to liberalize to the point where people can engage in um, uh, overseas trade so there was there, there was there was just sort of a trade off there it was like you can have more uh, freedom, but it's going to be in the economic realm. It's not going to be in the political realm. And um, I think most mainland Chinese or the Chinese by and large kind of uh, went for that. And, you know, whether I mean, it's not for us to decide whether that's a, that decision was right or wrong. That's just pretty much how it happened and, and what you see happening, you know, really for the past 25, 30 years now. That, that had to be an incredibly interesting time to be there. I mean, my specialty is on the Soviet Union and now the former Soviet Union. And I, I think back to the early 1990s when so many of the average Russian citizen were having to struggle with this new economic reality that they just weren't used to. And, you know, you had spent time looking at economic data, but eventually you turn your focus onto kind of the personal day-to-day struggles. I imagine there are a lot of, a lot of analogies between what the average Russian citizen in, let's say, 93, 94 had to deal with and, and the same in China at the same time when so much is changing from what they knew before. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I, I don't know as much about the Russian side, but I can tell you in in China, they, there really was just a sense. Like in, in all the years that I was there, there was always a sense that uh, th- there there was an understanding, an unspoken understanding, that everyone was trying to catch up with uh, with a good uh, twenty to thirty lost years that the that the country uh, experienced during. Of course, there was, the, there was the Great Leap Forward in the late 50s, then there was the Cultural Revolution in the 60s going into the 70s. So I, I think around about, you know, starting in the 90s, I think everyone had become aware enough about the outside world to, to realize that there was a lot of catching up to do uh, that China had to do. And I think, and so all of that catching up was happening on so many levels. The government was trying to, uh, state-owned companies were trying to catch up and and just down to individuals trying to figure out how do they play their their hand, uh, you know the the, the the fairly meager hands that they that they had, how do they play them so that they can get themselves into the right position to benefit from this wealth that really started to pour into the country, as as lots of other companies in, in other countries started manufacturing in China. Well, you talked about the fact that after Tiananmen Square, the government realized that it needed to open up a little bit economically. It needed to give the people a little bit more freedom. But how much did that fly in the face of the Chinese government kind of need to suppress dissent? To, 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 you know, you have freedom to a certain level, and then that freedom mm-hmm. ends very quickly when you're not going in the same direction as the country is. Uh, I think the strategy that they pursued was to to do as much as they possibly could in terms of opening up the country to uh, to foreign investment uh, or to foreign investors to let 
uh, companies start uh, enticing global companies with great incentives to come into China, start building factories. They created free trade zones. Uh, there, there were so many incentives that, that the government uh, established that uh, th that's why you had economic growth of upwards of, I mean, they had year-on-year -year economic growth of upwards of 13% up through like the, the late 90s and I think all, all the way into sort of the noughts. And, and I think that tremendous amount of economic growth, I, I think the government knew that if they could pull that off, that uh, that, that was going to, dr the, the benefits that people were, were, were kind of, were, were gaining from that was going to outweigh the complaints, the, the corners of society that had problems with, with the way that this, that this bargain was playing out would essentially be drowned out because everyone else, because the majority of mainland Chinese, I think they were, as I said, they were just kind of scrambling, figuring out what kind of credentials do they need to get, what kind of company do they need to get themselves into so they can position themselves to be sort of out front in terms of, you know, the ones that are that are benefiting the, the most. Well, what was there a rich poor gap that, that that it created? I mean, again, I'm going back to my experience with Russia where like there's an obscenely rich oligarchy now, and then everybody else is just kind of lower middle class, if not even you know below that. Was, yeah. You know, go ahead. Uh, yeah. So, um, I mean, it's a good question. I would say, well, there there was there was no way that there could not be a rich poor gap opening up because essentially, you know, when you go back to the '70s before uh, before Deng Xiaoping uh, ushered in the era of reform and uh, reform and opening up. Um, you, I mean, everyone was equal because no one had anything. I mean, except for except for the very top leadership in the country, everyone was poor. No one no one owned anything. No one had anything. So, as you have wealth pouring in, uh, you know, we, we all know that. I mean, any economist will tell you there, there's no way that you can that, that you can distribute completely equally if you've got uh, if if you've got suddenly you've got competitive enterprises operating in the country. Uh, so basically, with everyone starting from zero, and then with wealth coming in, there is certainly going to be a gap. And as for whether or not uh, how how that gap compares with other countries, I mean, I would say certainly by the uh, certainly by about 10, 15 years ago, you had a very striking uh, uh, a, a very wide gap between the rich and the poor. So the Wind of Muse takes place, or well, a lot of it takes place, during the years after Tiananmen Square leading up to the Beijing Olympics, which for many of us is not all that far in the past. Is this yeah. another watershed moment in recent Chinese history, another kind of transformative time for the country? Uh, it was very transformative. I don't think that it was quite as transformative as 1989 or Tiananmen Square. Uh, but I think it was a uh, it was a time certainly in the five years leading up to the 2008 Olympics. Um, there was it, it it's it, it kind of felt like the uh, it, I mean at that time I was living in Beijing, <clears throat> but it felt like it switched from high gear growth and construction and revitaliz revitalization of neighborhoods into like super turbo high gear ludicrous just, speed on you know, the same. yes exactly it, it you know it got to the point where there's pretty much anywhere you went in beijing i mean unless it was say Tiananmen square the forbidden city i mean obviously there are certain parts of the city that are not going to change that much because they realize that they've knocked so much of it down that they need to preserve 
the, the interesting bits that are left. But you know, anywhere outside of the areas like that, I mean, pretty much anywhere you were going was being was being redeveloped or had just recently completed redeveloping, or or the buildings had these big red characters painted on them. Uh, that's the character with, which is pronounced chai, which means um, uh, to, to demolish. So every everything, the entire city was in kind of the state of flux. Is, is that what you indicate that the book is based to some degree on real events? Is this really kind of the foundation of that statement? I, I know that people are fictionalized, but is that what you're talking about when you talk about this? Because that's really kind of the foundation of this book. Well, yeah, the foundation of the book is actually there, there was there was a friend of mine. Uh, he's a mainland Chinese guy who had studied and got his uh, he got his master's degree and an MBA in the U.S. And then came eventually he worked in uh, he, he worked in the tech industry for a while and, and, and sort of worked himself up very quickly. He's a very smart guy, but he decided that he wanted to go back to China and he, he just became very interested in filmmaking and documentary filmmaking. And uh, he, he made one uh, th when he first got to Beijing, and it went on sort of to the lower level um, uh, uh, documentary film uh, uh, festivals, got into a couple of festivals. He started working on a second one, and it was on a subject that the government didn't like. He touched on very sensitive areas, and he went missing. And uh, he, and, and it was shocking, because up until that time, my life as as a as first a student in China studying Chinese and then as a financial journalist, my life was never really touched by any of this stuff. I I, I was aware that there were that that that, that yes, Beijing was it was a very was a fairly authoritarian authoritarian government. Uh, but I, writing financial news, it ne it just never really touched my life, and it wasn't until my friend disappeared that 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 everything kind of changed for me. Uh, so yes, th so the novel is based on that and the disappearance of that uh, that person. Um, he eventually, after six months, after a six month period, he was released, and it was after generating quite a bit of publicity, which his sister did. And there's a there, there's a quite a there, there's a handful of people who really made a lot of noise about his disappearance, and I think that's probably one of the reasons he came back. But the book is based on that, but then it becomes very fictionalized in terms of collapsing characters and plot and whatnot. Right. I mean, no, no. From from reading the book, you're, what you're telling me, I'm like, that's the book. Uh, so, <laughs> yes. Are, are, so are you Jake? I mean, essentially, you're just changing names in this case. I mean, um, it, it's, it's a it's it's a little more than changing names. Actually, I gave I gave Jake a very different background than my own. So he comes from a rural part of Kentucky. I come from suburban Philadelphia. Uh, he he comes from he comes from a home that was. That was that was pretty broken actually, and, and mine was not. You know, I, I didn't come from that kind of household that, that he was in. So, he's Jake's actually overcoming more difficulties and struggles than than I ever had to. Jake's also blonde and he's got blue eyes, so I mean, <laughs> make that very clear. Completely different. Um, yes. <laughs> so this is not a weighted question. I, I, I everyone needs novels in our lives, but you have you've obviously have a foundation of considerable amount of information about China. You know this story. What make you made you want to change this into a novel versus writing this extraordinary story as a nonfiction book? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. So it started off as uh, the book really started off as a piece of creative nonfiction, and I, I got some initial feedback. You know, that we're going back ten years now uh, from a literary agent who 
just kind of said, well, what's where I, I, I need to, you know, th this story isn't as suspenseful as, as, as you know, where's the suspense in it? Because it was, yeah, yeah the question was, well, what happened to him? Like, well, he was released. It's like, was he badly damaged? Like, <laughs> Not really. <laughs> so, so there was this kind of this lack of interest because it wasn't suspenseful enough. And so, you know, I, I guess I was thinking that my approach was going to be, okay, here's a very difficult situation that these people are in, uh, and it's all taking taking place against this backdrop of tremendous social change and physical change. And I thought that that would be enough to carry it through. But, I mean, long story short, basically, the feedback that I got was, you should make this more suspenseful. And then after hearing that enough, it's the, it just occurred to me, you know what? I can bring in a lot more. I, I can bring in different scenes. It, it, I just thought if I fictionalize all of this, but I make it at the same time realistic, I can do a lot more with it. I can show, I can show more of what I'm trying to, I, I can say more of what I want to say about what happened or what was going on at the time uh, by fictionalizing it than I would have been able to do, I think, if I was writing a straightforward uh, sort of nonfiction piece right. about this. So I'm, I'm always hesitant to admit that I don't know a lot about something, um, but <laughs> I can honestly say <laughs> that my, my knowledge about the U.S.-China relationship is, is mainly historical. It goes back to the Cold War time period. I mean, I'm certainly up on the news, but I don't have a deep understanding. But it seems like we're still looking at today many of the same themes as we were back in the 50s and 60s and this really kind of a culture a misunderstanding between the united states and china just kind of both sides looking at the other not quite understanding what the other one is thinking i guess it's actually worse now of us toward them because so many chinese students have come to the united states they probably have a much better understanding of the way we do things than we do them uh, I would say there's you're right in that there's tremendous amount of misunderstanding on both sides. Um, I, I would say if if you're looking at if if you're looking at the 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 U.S. context or the American context and our understanding of China, uh, it, it's it's very it, it's been distorted a lot over the past, especially the past couple of years, because there have been so many uh, politicians are really. Um, uh, using particular instances of uh, of cyber espionage, uh, and w which are very real uh, events, which you know, these are things that are actually occurring. Uh, but to then try to portray all Chinese students uh, coming to the U.S. doing research in, in the field of uh, science or technology, to try and portray all of them, or even even to say, suggest that most of them, or I or a very large percentage of them are involved in some kind of espionage activity. I think is 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 ridiculous. Uh, I you know I, I don't know how else to put it. I mean, right. it, it, it's a it's a shame. It, it is a strategic issue. It is a national security issue that the that the government that the U.S. government needs to get smarter about. But I think, uh, but but again, from what I understand, I think you're talking about. I, I forget there was there was a professor that I was talking to at. Uh, University of Pennsylvania, and he's he's sort of up on these things, and he said, "Yeah, of course, maybe somewhere one out of every thirty or forty Chinese students may be coming to the U.S. with some sort of different, with some sort of extra assignment. Uh, but if you think that you, but if you're going to try and shut down 
uh, academic exchange on the basis of that, it's you know you're, you're you're really making a big mistake. It's really much it's more important for the government to figure out how to be smarter about who is coming in with the extra assignments. Well, I mean, I looked at some statistics and, and something to the effect of 320 plus thousand students every year coming to the United States. I mean, that's that's an extraordinary number. And an even more interesting number to me was that about one quarter of Chinese students, which one quarter means about 300 to 400 million, are studying mm-hmm. English. While mm-hmm. in the United States, it's like 0.06% of American students are studying Chinese. Are studying Chinese. <laughs> I mean, it's a dramatic difference. I mean, it's, it's 200,000 versus 400 million. And that, that doesn't even forget the whole difference in populations. It's 25% versus six one-hundredths of the percent, you know, yep. in that direction. Yep. Well, I mean, there's there's a lot behind that. I mean, number one, I guess, I mean, Americans have never uh, dazzled uh, in terms of the, you know, or have never really stood out in terms of being able to understand other cultures or <laughs> being able to speak other languages. Uh, it's kind of unfortunate. The other thing, though, is that you know, English is the uh, is is the lingua franca of, of international business. So that's uh, that that really makes it that's that puts more of an incentive that creates more of an incentive for Chinese to, to learn English. Um, but it, of course it, it doesn't excuse that massive imbalance that you're pointing out. And it's, it is unfortunate. And I think it, that, that imbalance, that imbalance does reflect, um, a kind of woeful, uh, state of affairs in terms of the ability of Americans to sort of understand what's going on in China and, and thereby, uh, sort of, it, to 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 come up with a, a sensible foreign policy, like within Washington, towards 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 China. Well, the same article said that about every year, only eleven thousand U.S. students go to China, which is the same number that America sends to Ireland. And I understand going there and drinking Guinness and studying, you know, Dylan Thomas might be great, but Ireland's <laughs> economy is like three percent the size of China's, and for you know, for any kind of future trade whatever we're getting we'll talk about that in a second future economic back and forth it might be better to have people that understand china a little more than we do now and and the problem it's not only that it's such a small number relative to to the to the scale of of the country uh but the other problem is that i found that so many american students when they go to china they they wind up in american ghettos really and none of them uh i'm not going to say none of them but a lot of them tend to kind of eat pizza and hang out together, and they don't really end up learning Chinese very well. When I went there, I mean, I, I, had, the, I had the luck of, at the time I thought it was bad luck because I wound up going to a very, like a third tier city and there, there weren't any other English speakers except for missionaries, and I wasn't really keen on hanging out with missionaries. And uh, so I didn't really have any choice. If I wanted to get anything done, I had to sort of figure out what, what words to use. So I, I, I'm kind of lucky in that I, at the, at, you know, at the time it felt kind of isolating. I felt pretty lonely. But on the other hand, I, I found that after two years, I, I could at least start using my, my language skills on the job. And uh, I, I do, I, I did notice when then later on when I was living in Beijing and I would talk to someone like a prospective applicant to, to our, you know, to, to join our, our newsroom and and they had they would say that they had been in China for a few a few years already but the Chinese wasn't that good and it's like yeah I know why that is because there's 
because now they're in Shanghai and now they're in Beijing and there's so much going on. These are big cosmopolitan cities now. And so they're going out and they're having fun. Whereas when if, if you went to China in the early 90s, there really wasn't much to do. They couldn't go out anywhere. I mean, it was exciting if you found a place that had a beer tap. So so you kind of just, you, you, you did your own thing and you integrated with Chinese people a lot more easily, I think, at that time. I wonder, I want to ask you about this. Is, is one of the reasons for the misunderstanding that Americans have towards China is because of the difficulty of getting, like, let me use the phrase, real news or uncurated news out of China? I mean, obviously, there, there, there are good journalistic uh, you know, you, people there. Uh, but even your paper, which is considered to be one of the better ones, has taken criticism for the close ties to uh, maybe not oligarchs, but people who are very rich, um, mm. ownership who have, you know, it, it's similar to any country where there's a close tie between the government and, and, and any kind of journalist, where you are limited in what you can actually say. Yeah, I, I would put it this way. Uh, I would say if, if you're talking about uh, the uh, CNN, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, um, they have you know, they, they're, they're limited in the number of reporters that they can have in China. Yeah. And so I think they're and, and so the, the number of reporters on the ground for these news outlets relative to all of the things that are going on makes it very hard for them to cover to, to cover a lot of ground. So consequently, they, they end up focusing on the stories that will capture Americans attention. So and it does tend to be things like discussions about the treatment of of, uh, of the Uyghur minority in Xinjiang. Or uh, about how uh, the, the 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 top levels, top leadership, all the way up to Xi Jinping, uh, that you know, last year when they got rid of the term limits for the president, I think all of this was really magnified. And 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 I'm not saying at all that those things should not be reported. Uh, but what's unfortunate is that you don't have a lot of resources in the ground to also capture some of the more positive developments that could be happening in China. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that the positive, positive developments outweigh the negative. I'm just saying that there are both. But when you're limited in re- reporting resources, you can't get to them all. Right. No, it's, uh, it's, I mean, I'm sorry. I, I mean, because I'm agreeing with you, let me jump in real quick. The idea of, you know, if you Google, like, problems in China, they're just hit after hit about ghost cities and corruption and cooking the books right. on economic data and all these things. And there is nothing, even if you just kind of uh, China – don't put problems if you just kind of Google and again current news about China you see espionage cases that's like today that's like the top 20 hits or the yeah. Trump administration yeah. tariffs and how they're quote unquote China is cheating or all right. of these horrible pollution problems or human rights issues or all these others there are very good good stories coming out of China mm-hmm. yeah there uh, you know again there, there's a lot to cover you know I, I, I would say it, it you know, at the same time, I'm I, I'm on the board of a small. Uh, it's it's a volunteer organization that uh, it's called the Five Project, for example, and it it, it serves to try and just uh, help facilitate um, uh, learning resources. Uh, it, it's about autism, actually, and just bringing uh, uh, specialists who know how to uh, how to how to deal with behavioral uh, issues around autism, bringing some of these specialists to China. And uh, so that so that there could be more expertise about that. And it's for me, it's, you know, it's interesting to see uh, groups getting together to solve problems like this. 
and and the, at the same time, there are also groups that are to, uh, civic groups that are trying to uh, deal with environmental problems, sort of more on the local level, and, and not being directed by the government, uh, and not being inhibited by the government. So, uh, so there's yeah, there, there are a lot of positive things going on in China too. It's just that you don't have enough reporting resources to to get to all of these things. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. So I, kn- I know that you tried to run away from, from economic coverage at one point in your journalistic career, but that really is the story of yes. now between the U.S.-China relationship. And, you know, there, there's the big picture philosophy that the U.S. and China are so intricately tied together economically that, you know, we're kind of playing with fire a little bit. But then there's this whole tariff story and the full-blown trade war that we're in now between yep. the United States and China. I've seen some statistics, and I want to like, kind of talk to you about it, because it doesn't seem like these tariffs have a chance in hell of being effective. Um, net exports in China are not a very big part of their GDP anymore. Am I wrong about that? Uh, you're correct. Yeah. They, uh, they're not as, as big as they used to be, I would say. And, one, and, and the United States is not necessarily, I think we're less than one-fifth of China's exports, like where they come to the United States. Uh, something like that. I don't have the numbers right in yeah, front I'm of me. Yeah, I'm cheating. I'm literally uh, staring at them. So yeah, so got it's you. Not, it's not <laughs> there <you> fair. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean the U.S. is is a big component. So uh, the 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 economy will the Chinese economy will take a hit from this. But uh, some of the numbers, I, some of the the predictions that I've seen uh, s- suggest that these these tariffs only affect somewhere on the order of like 3% of the, of the Chinese economy when you, when you boil it all down. So, uh, so I don't, so it, it's hard to say, are, are there knock on effects or there unintended consequences? Are there other sort of, is, is it going to hit some sort of economic cog that we're not looking at right now that will kind of be become a spanner in the works? I, I don't know, but, but yeah, it's it's a good question. There, there's there's a lot of uh, hand wringing uh, around this uh, around this this tactic that the Trump administration is using to deal with this problem. Um, I mean, I would say that the uh, I mean, you, you can say what you will about about President Trump, um, and I certainly have a lot of opinions about a, a lot of the things that he does and says. But I, I will say this. I mean, I, I think it was time for a more aggressive move uh, towards China. I don't know if tariffs really are, are, are the right way to go, but I do know that the 
I mean, really for decades, it was all about, I think, U.S. academics who had become policymakers kind of trying to sort of um, make sure that China uh, maintains its face. You know, you have to make sure that you give China, the Chinese leadership face or otherwise you won't get anything done. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, my sense is that after reporting on that for, I don't know, 20 years, it's like, well, it didn't really get anything for the U.S. Uh, it didn't really move uh, China to change its policies at all or significantly. So something had to give someone. The, the Washington did have to make sort of a, a bolder move, I, I think. Well, you're based in New York and Toronto, but you certainly, I would imagine, have colleagues in Hong Kong or in Beijing. How are the Chinese perceiving these policies? Is it as big a deal or is it just a ho-hum thing on the Chinese side? Uh, you know, it's it's kind of it's tough for me to answer from where I sit. I'm I'm in New York most of the time, uh, but uh, from from the bit, bits that I've gleaned from colleagues and from from coverage of my own uh, media outlet, the South China Morning Post, and and from other media outlets, is that uh, it, it's a pretty wide range. Um, and and uh, I I think what's important to to point out is that even though the, um, the the media landscape in China is very tightly controlled by the government, uh, you know there's there's only a certain viewpoint that's ever going to come out in the official media in China. Despite all of that, uh, the Chinese mainland Chinese themselves have a very 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 wide there's a very wide range of opinion about this, uh, and and, you've, and it spans all the way from the the hardcore nationalists who say that. The, the, the U.S. wants nothing more than to contain China, and this is this is just a continuation of all the humiliations that foreigners have tried to heap upon China over, you know, the many decades and centuries, uh, all the way to um, the other end of the spectrum of people saying, well, the, the the two sides should should sit down and talk, and that both sides should really should, should really offer some concession. Like both sides need to sit down and start offering concessions to each other. Uh, so it's, it's a wide range, I would say. You, you hinted at something in your answer that I want to ask you about, and this kind of this perception of that the Chinese are thinking about things in decades or centuries versus us who are thinking about things in news cycles. Is, is that as pronounced? Is that more urban legend, or is that as pronounced as, as some of us think it is? Um, I think it's it's more pronounced. It's more pronounced in China than it is. Or that sense of history, that that sense of the um, the the humiliations that the that the country suffered under the the imperial powers you know in particularly in the late 18th century and the early 19th century and of course the way that the end of world war one was negotiated and the way that the end of world war ii negotiated was negotiated was all very humiliating for for china because foreign powers really kind of um uh directly and in, in some cases indirectly in some cases very very directly uh, conspired to to leave China with with far less than than they probably deserved. Um, so, and in the sense of that, that that history is very um, is 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 very prescient uh, and and is very close to to many Chinese people. And in a way that when you when you talk to Americans, I'm, I mean, obviously, it's just that that's just it. It's that sense of history is 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 very long in China. Uh, and what happened in the late 18th century is much closer to the national consciousness than anything that happened in the late 18th century would ever, you know, impress upon anyone in the U.S. 
I mean, for us, the Vietnam, the Vietnam War is kind of like ancient history, whereas for the Chinese, you know, something that happened in, in, the, in the 60s and 70s would be sort of like yesterday. yesterday. Is that what makes Taiwan such a thorn in their side? I mean, we, we see it as kind of a strategic positioning, you know, off of East Asia. And, there, you know, Taiwan, of course, for the listeners out there, was where Chiang Kai-shek's forces retreated to during the Chinese Civil War. And we've propped it up. I mean, I think that's a right way of saying it. We've propped it up for the last several decades. Is it that sense of history that just makes the Chinese crazy when it comes to Taiwan? Uh, I, I think when it comes to Taiwan, there's there's very little uh, leeway among most mainland Chinese, and and I think uh, I think yes, I think part of it is the knowledge that it was really U.S. assistance that has kept Taiwan uh, operating as a de facto sovereign uh, country, uh, sort of in in all but name and official recognition from from just about every other country in the world. Uh, so yeah, I, I think there's the there's the, the understanding of that history that makes them angry about it and uh, makes uh, makes it very unlikely that you're ever going to have um, uh, that you're ever going to have mainland Chinese in general generally feel that like oh it's okay why don't we just why don't we just agree that this is this is a <laughs> this is its own sovereign place that that's just not going to happen. Well, you'd mentioned that. Um maybe now is the time to stop treating China with kid gloves or now is the time to change American policy. Is anyone, I'm not saying you, or maybe you are, you can tell me, is there anyone out there that anyone listens to on Chinese policy that would be advocating that now is the time to start talking about a two China policy and recognizing Taiwan? Um, so, uh, so, so the question is about Thai, about Trying to find a, a compromise around Taiwan? Is, no, is, I mean, going the other point? direction is actually just, mm -hmm. I mean, we have this convoluted oh. one China policy where yeah. we treat Taiwan as an independent state, but we don't say it in public. Um, mm -hmm. it, 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 that doesn't seem to have worked. I mean, you know, you talked about right. saving face of the Chinese leadership. You know, we want them to work with us on North Korea, which they don't do or they can't do. And you right. said now is a time right. to start thinking about maybe going in a different direction. I'm not advocating sure. this. I'm wondering if anyone is. Well, I, I would say that uh, the, the the idea that Washington, I think, would would just relinquish uh, or, or would would be okay with China taking over Taiwan is is difficult just because it's uh, the 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 efforts that China went through, sorry, that Taiwan went through in the early nineties. Where they where they actually established their first uh, national election, uh, they've got multi-party politics now. Uh, for for the U.S. State Department not to do everything that it can to support the continuance of, of that kind of uh, you know political entity in in Asia would be really difficult. Um, I I don't see I don't see any policymakers. You know whether they're whether they're kind of left leaning or right leaning, I don't see any of them um, advocating uh, a solution whereby they they kind of just say, well, well, Beijing, um, go ahead. Uh, maybe you can try the uh, you know the one country two systems. I, I just I don't see that happening. If if it were to ha if if anyone has the capacity to do that right now, 
for anyone, if there's anyone who would have the nerve to do that right now, it'd be, it would be President Trump. I mean, just because he's so unpredictable and he does seem to be a leader who is, who doesn't, who, who doesn't stand on, on, uh, on, on, on principle if it comes to, uh, you know, the, the chances of reaching a, uh, a, a pragmatic solution to something. Right. And what about the other way around? What about just coming right out and saying Taiwan's its own country? And if you don't like it, suck it. I mean, you know, I, <laughs> I, I think, well, the, the thing is, um, I, I don't think anyone, I, I think the, de- the defense department is, is aware that any, any overt move by, by the, by Washington to try to push Taiwan or try to encourage or entice Taiwan into a declaration of independence would, would basically just it it starts a war i mean it starts a hot war i mean there's you know everyone understands the the position you know beijing has made their position on this very clear and i i i think beijing would be uh they've said just as much uh you know the, the whole idea of keeping economic growth intact their 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 bid for that i think it's i think they won the 2020 olympics actually uh, which you know, all of this, they, nothing, none of that matters if Taiwan becomes an issue like that. You know, in in the face of Taiwanese independence, all bets are off, and uh, and China would do anything, uh, including uh, start, in, including military uh, intervention. And uh, I don't know if anyone in Washington is is wants to go there, right. and I think that's why you have the status quo. What about the South China Sea? Do the Chinese? realize how freaked out everybody is about what they're doing um well the uh i, I i'm not sure if they real. I, I think they realize now <laughs> i i don't know that they realized uh back when let, let's say i think it was about two years ago two or three years ago when all the satellite images started coming in about the about how they were uh building uh, or uh constructing islands and airstrips um I, I think I think the problem is that the, uh, at, while all of that was going on, the the Chinese signaled that this was this was about fishing fleets, it was about uh, navigation issues, and it was not they were not going to be militarized. Um, but then, the problem, then they started landing bombers on them. And, exactly. Yes. yes. <laughs> so and so then that happened, and uh, you know. The, you know, the the response has been I, I I'm you know frankly I'm I'm kind of surprised at how restrained the uh, the U S has has been about that. They, I know that they've been the, the U S sort of has been running their freedom of navigation operations or or FONOPS as, as they're known. Um, but I'm so, sometimes I'm I'm kind of amazed. There's some days I'm amazed that there's not more that there's not more of a uh, there's not a higher tension. There, there, there's not more sort of some kind of they're not there's no incidents of any skirmishes going on in that region i you know <clears throat> i guess the, the the pessimist in me you know it, it sort of finds it unbelievable that that they that that the two sides aren't clashing uh more in 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 more of a, a militaristic way uh, over this because the two sides are really dug in i mean the chinese side is very uh they, they cite very many historical sources, uh, and they cite uh, particular agreements. I don't have all of them in front of me, but to 
to establish their kind of dominion over that, uh, over the South China Sea. And, um, and, and so it, it's, a, it's an interesting situation because uh, the, you, you, I guess you have to wonder, the, because the, the navigation through that area is one of the reasons that China has, China's economy has grown so much. So um, I, I really do have to wonder, it, it's possible that, or to go back to your initial question, like, does, do the Chinese realize how, how everyone freaks out about that? Why, why or how everyone is so freaked out by what they're doing there? I can only say that um, maybe they, they, their feeling about it is that everyone understands that, that the wealth that's been created in the Asia-Pacific region has been in large part due to these open shipping lanes. And despite the fact that they are putting these installations in, how could anyone think that China is going to shut down the uh, the, the freedom of navigation and, and the trade flows that happen there? I mean, I can only think that that's what that's how they approach it. They have to see that. I mean, you'd think that you know Vietnam all of a sudden is cozying up to the United States. Japan is talking about creating hypersonic anti-ship missiles and going against you know having real conversations about going against their, you know, self-defense force and actually creating a real army. Are, are these things that are perceived on the Chinese side or are they, they kind of making us react to them? Uh, I have no doubt that the Chinese are very aware of all of these and, and they've got their best analysts on, 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 on Vietnam and uh, in particular, uh, but also um, on all the other countries that are involved in this. Um, I mean, all, all I can say is uh, about this is that I, I think they're they're walking a tightrope. Really, they're they they want to they want to have a much more modern navy, and they want to be able to project their military capability much further than they have been able to. And by uh, by putting these installations in the South China Sea, that allows them to do it. So they want. I, I think they just want that ability to be able to do that. Uh, to be able to show, their, to, to be able to, to, to be able to respond to 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 some sort of military issue that they need to be involved in, and also to show the uh, the, the the general public in China, you know, for political support that that China is much stronger. But at the same time, I think while they want to do all that, I think they're trying to reassure everyone else, including Vietnam, that they have no intention of using these installations in, in an offensive way. Uh, but of course, as, as we both know, you know, when, when is it, when is when is a response offensive and when is it defensive? Right. Because that can always get very muddled. Uh, but I, I think that's, I, 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 I think that's how they're, they're dealing with this. Let me, let me wrap this up by asking a couple big picture geopolitics questions because China used to be one of the most, if not the most, ideologically driven countries. I mean, that's where the Soviet, you know, Chinese schism from, comes from, where, you know, the Soviets wanted to be more practical about communism and, and Mao and the Chinese wanted to be kind of hardcore ideologues. Obviously, that's changed. But I'm wondering how much. Is there still, there, there's no way you can call them a communist nation anymore. They're just, there's so much free market capitalism, everything happening there. But how much is ideology driving what China is doing around the world today? Um, 
I would say that's basically that, a thesis, uh, master's thesis essay question. So I don't expect right. you to kind of answer it other than, you know, what are you right. seeing on the ground? Like how much of that feeling? Of... You know, the, the, the communist ide ideology does not make it all the way to the ground in China. And I think everyone understands that even though it's the Chinese Communist Party that's in charge, everyone knows that while communism does not play the role in China that it used to, uh, that they need to keep that name intact because once you remove that, then it creates a huge vacuum and a lot of political risk and uh, potential for a lot of chaos. And, you know, with all the chaos that the Chinese have been through in th throughout most of the 20th century, uh, none of them want to go back to that. So they're all willing to live with this formal declaration of this particular uh, ideology that guides the country uh, and while at the same time it's very much sort of more mercantilistic capitalist um, tactics that the that the government and the various companies within China uh, are, are using to to kind of to get ahead and and to uh, really pull the, the country and the economy into the 21st century and to uh and and to uh and to and to modernize it to to be as modern as, as it can be so yeah i i, I think you know the, the 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 ideology of communism is by and large dead uh in china except of course for the the idea that there is one party in charge and it's a, it's a much more authoritarian structure in that sense the the communist uh, communism still exists in China. However, as the, the the idea of kind of everyone shares, all all property is jointly owned. That's all gone. That's all you know. As as the country forges ahead and as the country modernizes, it's much more of a capitalistic strategy to do that. And everyone under I would say just about everyone in China understands that, and everyone accepts that. Robert Delaney, you can read him in the South China Morning Post. He's also the author of his debut novel, The Wounded Muse, which is out now. You can find it on Amazon or other places, too. Thank you so much, Robert, for taking the time to talk to us. We truly appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's been great. Thanks for having me on. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution to help support future educational programming. Please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page.